All right, so welcome to episode seven of the Jung and the Restless. We are back at it again after uh, some hangout time over the holidays. I have some huge blisters on my hands to show from our celebration of Nate's uh, PhD graduation because what he wanted to do was to go to celebrate his PhD. He wanted to go to an old school put your quarters in the machine batting cage and just rip dingers for an hour. And so that's what we did, except my machine glitched and it just wouldn't stop shooting baseballs. So I just kept swinging this antique aluminum bat until like my hands were on the verge of bleeding. But I got to tell you, I would do it again in a heartbeat. It was cathartic for you. I think. Well, really for obviously for both of us, but I think for both of us, it was a great idea. We were we were at Malibu Grand Prix. For any of you in the Norcross, Lilburn area, circa 1995, it's still there and it still looks and smells exactly the same way that it did uh, 30 years ago. Yeah. And for twenty for twenty dollars, so, you can play video games for two straight hours, nonstop. <laughs> any video, any games you want. And you can go through 18 holes of putt-putt and then start over and just do – you can go do the 18 holes backwards. You can do yeah. it forwards. You can start in the middle. It doesn't matter. 20 bucks, you're good for an afternoon. Yeah. So we're going to jump off of calling as our theme today. We'll probably come back to it. We, we still haven't hit the, the bottom. We still haven't mined the depths of, of calling as a theme, and it would be hard to ever hit that really – all the way down to its core, but we're going to switch over to consciousness because I have been working through this book, The Origins and History of Consciousness by Eric Neumann for God only knows. I don't, two and a half years, two years, I can't remember. I, I, I just remember starting it and reading the first couple of pages and then putting it down as and saying, there's no way I could ever finish this book. It was every sentence I had to read like two or three times. But eventually, I sort of under, started to understand his language, which is really interesting because Carl Jung calls it the book that he wished he would have written because Eric Neumann was his protege. Eric Neumann wrote this and published it in 1948. He was he fled Germany. He, he grew up in either Austria or Germany and fled to Israel during World War II, during the Holocaust, and published this book in 1948. And it really is sort of the culmination of Carl Jung's influence and thought on a lot of different topics. And so I finally finished it. Long story short, I finally finished the book this week, and I've been wanting to hit on some of these topics Consciousness, like calling, could take you know decades to mine through, but I wanted to hit just some of the highlights in regard to what does it mean for us? What does consciousness mean for us, like on a daily basis? Like, what's the goal of consciousness? We hear people talk about consciousness, and Bill Murray on his deathbed will achieve total consciousness. So he's got that going for him. But what's the goal? What, Why strive to become more conscious? And why have 
humans, why have we as a species for who knows how far back, thousands, tens of thousands of years, why have we pushed through this difficult process of becoming more conscious when so many other species, Nate has some very specific thoughts about giant whales. I don't really know if there are any other species that are conscious, but it, it makes us uniquely human. So my question starting at the beginning is what makes us conscious? What does it mean to be conscious? And then how do, when we build from there, we can get into the, some of the symbolism because Neumann talks a lot in the history of consciousness about the symbols that ancient people used to represent the psychological processes they were going through, starting with the snake eating its own tail as, as sort of this unconscious primitive state. And that symbol can be found by multiple various people groups from the ancient world in different continents who were not connected, but they all sort of gravitated to this unified snake eating its tail. So we'll get into some of the symbolism because I think it's fascinating. And once you understand the symbolism, the, the general universal symbols, then you can start to put some pictures together, whether it's dreams, whether it's Disney movies, when you're just trying to recognize the archetypes that we deal with today, a lot of those symbols are just ancient and universal and you can sort of put those together. But I want to try to make sense of consciousness. And we'll start uh, sort of at the beginning and see how far we can get. But Neumann describes this initial ego birth where the individual initially becomes aware of himself. He just distinguishes me from the world. So there was a someone at some point in history began the process of emerging a psyche, an ego, an understanding of I am different from everything around me. I have a boundary and an identity that ends where the external world begins. Because primitive man, according to Neumann, was just this was just animalistic. It was just a reactionary uh, the universe. There were things that happened, and then there were just instinctive reactions, the way a dog instinctively barks out the window. There was just stimulus, stimuli, and response. And at some point, man becomes aware that he is distinct from the world, and then it gets interesting because here Neumann says the strengthening of consciousness is born out is born out by the laying down of moral attitudes which delimit the conscious from the unconscious by substituting knowing action for unwit unwitting impulse so essentially as soon as the ego becomes aware of itself as soon as the ego recognizes the self as different from the world all of a sudden everything changes from an interaction standpoint because now the the individual is acting on the world himself is is seeing is trying to understand his influence in relation to the external world 
So can he affect the external world? Does the external world affect him? All of a sudden, there's a relationship now where we were one and the same. We were all just matter stimulating and responding to each other through the, you know, the laws of physics. But now there's two different parts of the universe. There's me and there's the world. And essentially there's me and then there's other. And so now all of a sudden, Neumann calls it unwitting impulse, is no longer my mode of operation. Now it's knowing action. And so I think that's where we're sort of establishing what consciousness is. Consciousness is an identification of my separateness from other, from world, and then consciousness becomes my knowing action. Consciousness influences my knowing action. Yeah. So Matt, let me ask a couple of clarifying questions to the for those of us that have yeah. not those those of us that have not been swimming in in uh, the history of consciousness in the Western world. So one. We are talking about consciousness of self, right? And awareness yes. of, of my being. Yeah. And two, um, consciousness is something that we can become. In other words, it's not a it's not a binary. It's not I'm conscious or unconscious. It's something I can grow into. Is, is that would that be accurate? Yeah. So that's a good question <clears throat> that I that I wanted to sort of clarify because uh, what it looks like for me it in imagery is just a spotlight. So consciousness, our consciousness is not, let's, let's back up a step. Our consciousness is not our thoughts. So animals think, humans think, that doesn't establish either as conscious. But the consciousness is then the awareness of the thoughts. So this ego part of the self establishes itself separate from the cognitive center separate from the cognitive brain, the cognitive process. It's connected to the cognitive process because consciousness, as best we can tell, you know, comes out of brain activity or directly influences brain activity. It's connected to brain activity. But we are aware that we are thinking and we are aware of our impulses. A lot, we can be. Sometimes we are, sometimes we aren't. But depending on that spotlight, so the ego's sort of has this consciousness spotlight that it that it shines in the different parts of ourselves. So the part that's in the light that that the ego is is reflecting on is we're conscious of those parts of ourselves. And the part where the spotlight is not shining, those dark areas of ourselves that we can't see is the is what what Neumann and Jung would call our unconscious. The our we we have two separate systems of self, one being consciousness, one being the conscious and one being the unconscious. So it, it, a spotlight is what makes the most sense to me where the ego is shining the spotlight on our actions and on our thoughts to the point where through the ego, we're aware of our own thoughts to some degree. And we're aware of our own actions where, as, you know, obviously like a dog, you can stick its nose in its own shit and it has no idea like are you trying to show me the rug or like there's no who's is like there's no i did this and i regret it or you know there's no awareness the dog is thinking but there's no awareness of its own it's not knowing thoughts. action 
Yeah, that's it. And Matt, it makes that's me. It. Okay, so one of the things that it reminds me of this idea of knowing action is that the self we we only become conscious of ourselves when we encounter difference, or when we encounter other mm-hmm. something other than like you know how would you know anything about who you actually were? How would you know if you were you know if you were big or little? Uh, you know, like yeah, fast or slow, loud or quiet, unless unless you encountered somebody that is not that and and from what if i understand what you're saying correctly is that we're not always conscious of ourselves which which sounds like a sounds like a weird thing to say that sometimes i'm actually not aware of my own existence what a funny thing to say but it's mm-hmm. but it's absolutely true i think it it reminds me of this essay by uh, by jean paul sartre who's like a french philosopher who talks about it's called uh, the spy, I believe, and he talks about the the uh, it's it's very dark and it's like really really interesting, super existential, but it's the act of a man who's spying on his rival through a keyhole. Okay, so it's very weird, uh, and and the the essay turns on the moment that the man hears footsteps behind him, and suddenly he realizes what he's doing so Hmm. before that he's totally entranced and trying to get some information or get get data on on his rival he's obsessed with it to the point where he he actually forgets he's he's a grown-up bending over peering through a keyhole but the moment he realizes that another that he's the object of someone else's gaze he becomes aware of everything he's doing he got lost in the action right? So that wouldn't necessarily be knowing mm-hmm. action, even though he knows what he's doing, because he's actually, he forgot what, that he was looking through a keyhole. But if you were to stop him and say, hey, what are you doing? He'd say, well, I'm looking through a keyhole, right? Only by encountering yeah. the, the other or something different than us that we become aware of our own boundaries and our own actions, right? No, I, yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, no, that's it exactly. Because it's like if you were to ask him, hey, what are you doing? All of a sudden, he would take that spotlight and shine it on this thing he's doing where it wasn't shining yes. before. Yes. Like that, what he was doing was in, in the dark to himself, and he wasn't even conscious of himself. But then when you approach, all of a sudden, he becomes conscious, and, and then he can answer the question. But, but by redirecting the spotlight to where it wasn't before. And I think you're absolutely right about the other. And I think that's what Neumann is laying out, is that primitive man somehow discovers the other, somehow discovers separateness is what he calls it. Did, did they eat the – was it from eating the, the fruit from the tree, knowledge of good and evil? Well, that's one of, one of the accounts that, that Neumann would lay out as a – as a myth, that's one of the myths that that Neumann would account as as that part of that are we, process. And are we getting there? Did I get ahead of us here? A little bit ahead. I mean, yeah, the Torah is is pretty far advanced from the early tribal totems and rain dance and and that kind of thing, where where Neumann starts, um, because we don't know how far back this goes. We we just have sort of echoes of myths and rituals that primitive people did 
and Neumann is taking these clues and putting them together to give us a narrative of the experience of early humans and then how that evolved and how the process uh, snowballed. Because to your point, we're only partly conscious now. We're not fully conscious of ourselves. And so we're still in our story of modern man is still in the history of consciousness. We're, we're another chapter in that history. And so primitive man discovers other. He discovers himself as sort of different from the, the world, separate from the world. But that doesn't mean he knows anything about himself or anything about the world. He just knows that he is separate from the world. And so then comes the process of self-discovery, self-awareness, and, and consciousness. Because early primitive man was, was conscious of almost nothing. I mean, talk about a keyhole as opposed to a, as opposed to a spotlight. I mean, it was just a, a, you know, a tiny sliver of light in, you know, penetrating into his psyche. Uh, but, and this is kind of what I want to get to because the next, what, what Neumann lays out is sort of the next thing that happens is he says the, the center common to conscious action through the will and to conscious knowledge through cognition is the ego. So, Essentially, the ego comes first before conscious will, before will and conscious action, and before cognition and conscious knowledge. So the ego sort of sets itself as the thing that is not the world. And then will and cognition come down the road. They come later after the formation as a byproduct of ego formation. So uh, essentially, the ego... Let's see here. Let's see what let's see what Neumann has to say. He says, "Okay, orientation comes through ritual, through the subjugation of the world by magic, which imposes order." So essentially, what happens next is the ego sees itself, sees the world, and then starts to try to figure out how to affect the world. How do now if I can if I can have some impact or effect on the world? Well, this changes things. And so then primitive man starts to try to figure out what exactly can I do to control and put order on the chaos around me, the weather patterns, the sun coming up and going down, the predators, group dynamics, all of those things, primitive man is trying to figure out, okay, now how do I orient myself in relation to those things so that I can manipulate those things in order to get what I want so Matt, is that the magic that Neumann's talking about? The rituals or the yes. uh, the 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 com the compulsion to try to control? So so like a rain dance, right? Or uh, you know, cre creating some, some you know like these various these various kinds of symbols uh, or practices that will get get us what we what we need or what we want from a universe that is other than us is. Yes. Okay. That's the, that's the air quotes magic. Okay. Yes. And that's the way, you know, ancient man forever saw the world through a lens of magic. Like the world was enchant an enchanted world and everything happened through magic. And it was like, it, it was almost like a, a baseball player, you know, 
chewing 435 seeds a game to keep his hitting streak going. It was like, oh, I did this yesterday and this happened. I should do this every day and make this happen. Like I walked, I climbed up to the top of the mountain and it started raining on my field. Well, I need to climb the mountain every day in order to get the rain to come down on my field. So a ritual develops of climbing the mountain every day, because if I do this, then the world responds with this. So essentially ritual comes in before that. And that's why ritual comes in before cognition, because you know, primitive man is not thinking, well, if I re go up to the mountain and I touch the cloud, I'll affect the weather pattern. No, it's not, it's, it's not even cognitive. It's just, I did something, this happened. Maybe if I do it again, this will happen again. And so, so primitive man just starts tr trying to replicate these experiences or create these experiences, which will bring about the, the outcomes around him that he wants to see. And so that's the magic. It, it appears first as magic. Like I, I, climbed the, I climbed the mountain and the sun came up, magic. I don't know how, like I, I did that. It's, and primitive man goes, I did that. Like, like how else did the sun get here? But obviously I did it. Obviously me climbing the mountain, I did it. And so everything takes on that, that magical nature. And then it stayed that way. Obviously it developed, uh, but up until, you know, up until the enlightenment, the world was a magical place for for everyone for for the entire world you know for all people groups and then it wasn't until you know the scientific worldview that we sort of tried to take the magic out but we still didn't we didn't take the ritual well, that's, out that's, that's for sure we just tried to take them sorry i cut you off there no go ahead <clears throat> i was done we still live in a world where we practice magic i mean we talk about primitive man practicing magic and that's that that's true but it's not mutually exclusive, right? So what we're not saying is, but now in 2023, we don't because, because it's, right. it's everywhere. Uh, and, uh, and so maybe that, that's what you meant when you said earlier that we're still in the history of consciousness, right? Is that we're still practicing or, you know, we're, we're still, yeah, we're still practicing these rituals or this magic. And the second thing would be that magic isn't necessarily like a pejorative term here, right? It's, in other words, it's not meant to poke holes in what you're doing necessarily, right? It's not like saying, well, what you're doing is right. stupid or silly or nonsensical or make-believe even, right? I mean, am yeah. I understanding that correctly? Yeah. When we talk about a world that's magic, we're talking about a world that's beyond ourselves. It, it, that's how I understand it. It's yes. a world that is beyond my ability to know in its entirety or to be conscious of in its entirety. Therefore, there are dark exactly. places dark places that I, that I actually can't wrap my brain around, that I can't figure out how this thing is happening or how this is working. So I'm going to use all the data around me to try to put together some kind of, some kind of system or some kind of picture where I can orient myself uh, within this. That's it. That's it. So exactly. It's not like, it's not that's like it exactly. And that's the whole thing. Magic. We're just being a part of the history of humanity, right? We're just, we're being fully human, perhaps. Yes, is, is a better way to put it. That's exactly it, and it's not. We're doing. We do what works, and then we and then we go back and 
and sort of mythologize it and sort of explain it. But we just do what works first and then we go back. And so that's what it, primitive ma calling this magic is not saying that these people are idiots, which is a purely like sort of Western modern way of thinking. But these people are actually the way Neumann is describing it. These people are geniuses. These people are, are like heroes who fought against every other proclivity and instinct to move themselves forward in the world, to establish themselves, to, under, to understand their own identity. And so what you understand first is what happens when you encounter the world. You encounter the world and you do something, and if it works, then you keep doing it. And then you figure out later what it is and why it works. And I think that's what uh, Neumann says. He, he really sums it up and says, the important thing is that consciousness as the acting center precedes consciousness as the cognitive center in the same way as ritual precedes myth or magical ceremony and ethical action precede the scientific worldview and anthropological knowledge. So conscious action, like a will to conscious, to, to knowing action comes way before we ever turn these things into concepts, before we ever break them down and dissect them and turn, you know, into little pieces and parts. It's just, we're, we're going to do what works. And actually the doing of the ritual is what allows other and the world to sort of reflect back to us some information, some differentiation. And then, and then we gain consciousness and self-knowledge. and self -knowledge. And then we gain broader consciousness of what's happening in the world and what's happening in ourselves. And so that spotlight starts to expand. But it starts by acting. It starts by, by doing, going through the rituals. And then after that, what does he say? This ritual precedes myth, and, and acting center precedes the cognitive center. So ritual happens first. Historically, this is, I mean, historically, people were doing things, and then later they would add the myth to it, to the practice. But the practice came first because the practice was a way of engaging and orienting with the world. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, that's, that is what you just described is the uh, is like the antithesis or so count is so counter to the way that we understand the world right the, at least i think if i understand what you're saying is it, what i hear is, is that the the action or or experience occurs before theory or concept right but we're so often yes. taught that it's the other way around that we're like out there testing out these concepts but the fact is, like we talk about it, like learning here, it, it, you know, in, in, in the education world, it's like uh, it always begins with experience, always. And and then we move into trying to organize that experience in a way that in a way that is integrated with the world that we live in. But we we think it goes the other way around that, like, I've got to start with getting all this knowledge, knowledge that's, you know, whatever in a book or, you know, wherever objective knowledge and then i've got to make my experience fit according to to these universal concepts 
And that's that's where we actually, I, I think that's where we have a lot of cognitive dissonance and we we get very confused about our own identities and our own roles because we we think that it starts with these these you know the, the concepts we find in 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 uh, I don't you know you know in in our schooling or in our education or in our in our religion. But what Neumann is saying is it's the opposite, right? Yes. And and so in that way, our concepts ought to be expressions of our experiences rather than boundaries of our experiences. In other words, we ought to be liberating our experiences through these concepts rather than being, rather than being uh, imprisoned, rather than our experiences being imprisoned within these with concepts. Now I'm just now I'm just using too much jargon. But the whole idea is like, if if I'm convinced by my by what I learned in school that the world only works in this specific way or consciousness, I am only supposed to operate as a human in this specific way. And then I find out something new about myself that is outside of that knowledge, then, then like I'm, I'm up a Creek, right? It must, it must be something wrong right. with me. And I need to reevaluate me, which is another way of saying, I need to go back into uh, become more conscious of some part of myself. But Neumann is saying it's the opposite. And, and I'm not going to get this. This is, I, I kind of want to get on a, a soapbox here, but I'm not going to uh, that that what we believe about the world or the concepts that we create about how things act ought to be liberative expressions of our experience rather than, you know, rather than they have to be emancipatory. Yeah. I, I maybe took yes. that, took that further than what, Neu I mean, I definitely took that further than what Neumann is saying and what you're saying, but. No, you just took the logical next step. You, you're just in, in the logic. You, you just took what obviously Neumann lays out in this book, what doesn't, he doesn't say it. He doesn't go there because it's not within the it's not within the the terms of his research. But if what Neumann is saying is true, then what you're saying is what how we ought to engage with the world and with our magic, with our yes. magic. And to go back to that phrase, because yeah. I think religion religion could be or would be considered again not pejoratively, but would be considered magic, right? And so, right. so if, yes. if my religious knowledge that I create is like, this is how the God that I believe in works. And this is how the, you know, this is the order of the universe. Uh, and this is absolute. And then I have this experience in life that doesn't align with these things that I was taught, these theories or concepts, then, then I have a serious existential crisis. God doesn't have the existential crisis. It's me. Right. And I think we I think our magic becomes destructive when we enter into those kinds of situations rather than our magic being accountable to our experiences. Right. Our religion ought to be an expression of our experiences, not some some like, you know, not some kind of. Uh, you know, uh, boundary of them. Yeah. So the magic that early man, early conscious man discovers is that not only is he separate from the world, but that what he does has an effect on the world. And so early conscious man has no idea what that effect is or how to recreate or alter those effects. And so, yeah, so what you're saying is that, and, and you're jumping to the, you're jumping to the, to the good part, right? Where religion comes out of that, like, from that conscious action, from that 
quest from that drive to see what we can do to affect the world, what consciousness can do to affect the world, then we get, we enter into religion. We create, religion comes out, ritual comes out of that, and then eventually religion comes out of ritual. And then eventually what's fascinating too is that science comes out of that as well. Like science is nested into that, you know, like the, the Russian doll, like it's, you know, ritual and then religion. And then out of that quest to master our environment, to affect our environment, then we create science. We develop science. But if we get away from the personal experience side of it, like you're talking about, and it's just, it's just dogma and it's just rules and it's just a formula, it's formulaic, the rituals, then we get out of that conversation with reality. And that's what, and, and that conversation with ourselves, the parts of reality. That's right. That, the parts, that's right. Yeah. The parts of reality that we don't understand and the parts of ourselves that we don't understand, then we, we exit that dance. We, we leave that conversation, which is, which is where the magic is. It's in that discovering of the parts of ourselves that we don't know and the parts of reality that we don't understand. And so there is absolutely a role for dogma and doctrine and what Neumann calls the canon, the cultural canon. Like we have to have these ethical norms and standards and practices, but the magic of ritual is a participation. It's like an engagement with the process of doing these things in order to discover uh, the parts of ourselves, the unconscious, the unconscious parts of ourselves and the parts of reality that we don't understand. And so ritual is like, like we just do like ritual comes first before any cognitive understanding before any religion, before science it's, it's ritual. Like, we, we just are, we're just re ritualistic animals. That's how we, that's how the process of consciousness plays itself out. I think that's a helpful way to talk about it, that we are, that we're ritualistic animals, right? That we don't actually even need to be, I don't know what the right term is, Matt, whether it's like compulsive or pathological or whatever, but we, like, we don't even need to try oftentimes to create rituals. We just, we just do them. We're just selfing. We're being ourselves. We're living, living in, in the world. And, and I think the, you know, the, the power of rituals is that they are expressions of our humanity, of our human experience, and rather than uh, delimiting our human experience, right? Rather than being prohibitory, prohibited. And so, which is probably a, a really good heuristic device to understand when, like when religion becomes destructive. Right, or when it becomes unhealthy or something like that, when our rituals become unhealthy is when they're actually limiting the exploration of self or the understanding of self rather than facilitating it. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's exactly right. And that's what we're, we, we're, we're, we keep going around this. We're circling this. And I think we're we're right there on the edge of like making this as simple and as clear and as practical as we possibly can. But it's like, 
we don't, we engage in saying, obviously we've established ritual comes first. Like we do rituals before we do anything else, before we have, before we even have ideas or myths or ab, before we turn anything into an abstraction, we ritualize as a way of engaging with the world based on our limited consciousness. So the early, early conscious man has this, has this tiny, I, I don't know if size is the right way to measure it, but this tiny little ego that emerges somehow in a way that we're not exactly clear on. So, so you can, if you, you know, if you're thinking about the flashlight example or the keyhole, it's this little keyhole of light. And then ritual is like the first thing that happens after that little bit of conscious light shines. And then what we do is, is take that light and expand it to shine on the ritual. Like then we become conscious. The next step is we sort of become conscious of the ritual and conscious of what's happening. And then we expand that even further. So then we understand a little bit more of the world and our ritual gets developed, our rituals get developed and our rituals evolve and advance. And then we take our consciousness and we under start to understand, okay, here's what's happening in this ritual. And here's what I've learned by practicing this ritual. So then our, the, our, the light gets bigger as we practice. And then as we reflect, as we con conscious action and then conscious reflection and then conscious action and then conscious and the, the light keeps growing and expanding and giving us more ability to then act consciously and then reflect consciously. And so the ritual only breaks down when it becomes compulsive, when it becomes dogmatic, then it loses its magic when it's not being done with an attitude of conscious action and then conscious reflection. Like that pattern, once it just becomes rote and, and superimposed on us, and we don't engage in it as if it has something to teach us or something to show us about the world. And then it becomes, it actually becomes either useless or destructive. But we learn, we, we don't, we don't come up with ideas and myths and abstraction and then go, Hey, this would be a great ritual to do <laughs> based on this myth that I've developed. It's just, we've been doing all these things. We've been acting and then we go, you know what? This, if we put these pieces together, this is what that looks like. And then we pat, and then we recognize the pattern in the ritual and develop the myth. And then we abstract the, the value from it. See, I think though that Matt, we do do that sometimes. Oftentimes that we do take the myth, the universal and out of that say, well, based on this this universal truth or based on this myth, you know, we're going to create. We should be creating these practices. And I think that's a good way of talking about. I, I think to to another way of talking about ritual is an extension of our humanity. Is it's cases and universals. So like adhering to a universal myth, and then out of that, as if it is law, right? And then out of that, creating ritualistic practices. In, in this way that our practices are accountable to this this myth, instead of the other way around, instead of our cases, our our our, our rituals, our individual experiences 
informing or transforming that myth, that, that universal idea or belief. That's the way it, it should be that way. But here's the thing is that it starts, and, and this is one of Neumann's big points, is that the, the history and the origins of consciousness as humanity are reflected in the history and origins of our consciousness individually. So like, you know, as a, as a newborn, and then as you get to, you know, two, three years old, the, the little, the little ego emerges, but it's still, but it's still very weak and, and not def clearly defined. It doesn't, it knows that it's diff something different than the world, but it doesn't know exactly how to engage with the world. And then it, you know, then it moves to the grade school child who's has to be handed down all of the dogma in, you know, like in the classroom setting, in the church, in the underneath the parents, like those social structures and institutional structures govern the way that sort of semi-conscious being in, moves through the world. And then once they get to adolescence, then it's like, wait a minute, some of this dogma doesn't match up with the way I see the world now because the I is, is becoming much more important. The, the me that I feel inside is much more significant than it was when I, the me that I felt inside at five, once you yeah. start getting to, you know, 13, 15, and then, and then that's the first, then now you're in the first half of life that we've talked about before, where you're, yeah, you're, right. you're understanding your identity and your experience, and you're trying to match it up with the social norms and the social experience and trying to understand, are, do these rituals fit my experience? Is the pattern that's laid out for me good? Is it one to follow? And wisdom would tell you most of the time, yes, it is. But there's an emerging ego that has to test these things. And then once you, and, and that's what that's what life is from, you know, like basically 15 to 35. And then the second half of life is, okay, I can understand, I understand my experience my own lived experience and I understand the social, the collective rituals that have been. So now I have, if you, if you're fully, if you're developed, if you've gone through the maturation process, if you've submitted yourself to the, to the maturation process, then you have a much better understanding. And then you can actually make some clear distinctions like, okay, what I was handed from the collective, the rituals I was handed have a lot of value but they don't match exactly my lived experience, the things that, and so now it's a matter of aligning those two and integrating experience and the collective ritual, the collective canon. And now you're, because your consciousness is expanding. Now you've, you, you're, you're, you've cognitively wrapped your head around the ritual. You've become conscious of, of your own internal structures. And now you're, it, the second half of life is about, fully integrating those two. That's a helpful way of talking about a midlife crisis, right? Of how we get to a midlife crisis, which we've also talked about in a different way. Yeah. Right. Is is integrating the self and the ritual or the self in the world and trying to find the proper, I don't know what it would be, balance. 
right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have to, the ego has to has to define itself. There has to be a long process of the ego establishing itself and establishing its independence. The, the the self has to be established, and that's that first half of life. That's the you know from from basically adolescence to about you know give or take 30, 35. and then all of a sudden yeah. once the ego feels strong enough to now reintegrate all the collective, all the ritual that it that it fought against, that it def that it um, delineated itself from, now it reintegrates it in a way that that is healthy that pushes it that 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 creates a higher level of consciousness a broader a broader spotlight that that spotlight now the the process has op, has has reversed from now putting limits around the in the limits between myself and the world and now <clears throat> now i'm bringing those two back together but consciousness is expanding so here's an observation matt all of our talk about ritual, religion, magic, none of it produces knowledge, secret knowledge of the, the thing out there. It's all producing knowledge of the self, right? Consciousness. Yeah. Self-consciousness. So, so is that what our rituals are really doing for us? Is that, is that what, is that ultimately what our religion and our religious practices are doing? Is, that, is just revealing more of the boundaries or the, the, the shadows and nuances of the self, not of the thing that's out there, the great wince from which we came? Yeah, well, that's the ultimate question. That's the, that's the right question. Um, and I think, so here's the thing. Why, and this is what you and I have talked about, not on the podcast, but we've talked about before. It's like, why push ourselves toward consciousness? Like, what are we driving at? What are we getting out of it? Like, why become more conscious? Because there's a strong temptation for all of us to, to drop into unconsciousness, whether that's scrolling through social media or just binging on Netflix or whatever that, that medium is where we can sort of check out of the thinking process, check out of that, of that, uh, of the, the struggle, like the, or the friction, it's more like friction, that like strain of dealing with our own inner experience or the effects of what we feel is the external experience. And so the temptation, and it works like to, to just go, to just get on the Nike website and just look at Jordans for like 20 minutes, it soothes that like angst or the stress or whatever it is of the situation or to get on Instagram and just, or YouTube shorts and just watch <coughs> 60 second videos. But what happens is, and the difference is that this, that becomes, we become unconscious. Like we're the, we're the guy looking through the key, spying through the keyhole, not aware of what we're doing. And so we're essentially missing out on our own lives or opting out of our own lives, you know, 30 minutes at a time, 10 minutes at a time. And 
the goal of becoming more conscious is so that we can take, um, you know, what is, we can take knowing action. We can substitute knowing action for unwitting impulse. We can take, being conscious just means simply like taking ownership of our own identity and therefore taking ownership of our own lives. Because otherwise, we're just controlled by compulsion and impulse and instinct. And the goal of consciousness is to let go, is to, is to go beyond, is to rise above and go beyond impulse and compulsive reactionary behavior. And so in order to do that, we have to become aware of what's, we have to be willing to look at reality in the eyes. And that reality is, to answer your, to finally answer your question, it's, it's the world and then it's ourselves. And there's not really a way to distinguish between the two. Like my experience of the world I don't really know how much of it is a projection of what's happening inside of me or is it a, an objective reality that's out there and not in here. And so the only way to take ownership of my own life and to understand my own life is to become more conscious of what's happening in this present moment, whether, whether I'm being conscious of what's happening around me or whether I'm focusing my consciousness on what's happening inside of me. If I, if I ignore my own experience, I can just sink down into unconsciousness. But the result of that is I'm, I'm no longer me. I'm no longer free. I'm no longer autonomous. I no longer have any say over my own life. I'm just, I'm just simply, I'm just, animal I'm just an animal I'm just a dog barking out the window I'm just do, responding to whatever external stimuli happens and so so I, you know then then the question is okay so what's the benefit of being autonomous what's what's the real is is being uh, is is being is finding out who you really are and being your true self and living living as a conscious agent and experiencing life as a conscious agent is that better? Is that worth all the struggle, the work of becoming conscious? Or should I just have another jelly donut and and watch Netflix? I'm trying to think of the uh, what's the, uh, the the Disney movie with the I can't remember which movie it is where all the people just live in bubbles and they just have like big gulp ices and and popcorn. Um, I don't know. Yeah. But I, I don't have I don't have four kids. It'll it'll come to me. But but that I mean that's that's what we're that's what we're looking at. We've talked about this before, but this is this is the the final scene of Braveheart, right? It's it's where uh, I don't know if it's William the Longshanks or his you know his his son, but William Wallace is fun. oh Robert the Bruce Robert the Bruce betrays William Wallace. He's captured and they're gonna they're gonna torture him and kill him. And he's like in prison and that the French princess that 
that's in love with him comes to him and she's like, hey, I've got this medicine. Just take it. It'll it'll like ease the pain of the torture that's coming. Right. And he's going to be like publicly tortured. And he pretends to take it. And then when she leaves, she, he spits it out. It's like and, and he can't do it. Right. So he's going to like numb his wits. He's going to he's going to actually become less conscious, but he's going to avoid the pain. And the question that we're asking is like, why avoid the pain or why not avoid the pain? Is it really worth it when you could just numb your wits, right? You could just check out, do whatever you need to do to escape or to avoid. And I don't mean that like hypothetically, and I don't think you meant it either when you asked the question of like, what is the benefit? Why wouldn't I do that? Um, what's the payoff? So, so I, I think I think one of the payoffs <clears throat> is that. We've been talking a lot about the about magic and religion and the self, right? Is that I, I actually can't ever get to any kind of real religious experience except except through the self. I don't think except through a like a self consciousness. So by dumbing myself down or by escaping, I'm actually like by by sort of trying to to check out um, and becoming less aware of myself. I'm actually limiting my experience, my ability to experience anything, anything spiritual or anything divine, anything of, of any kind of religion, religious experience. It's it's and and I think oftentimes our temptation is to is to we gravitate toward religion because it can be an escape hatch for us, for the self. Um, and and I don't know, you know, you, this this isn't my bag, but you know, like. I, I know that you know, like folks that folks that gravitate toward religion, um, uh, uh, some of the reasons can be that it's just so much easier to make to have somebody else make decisions for me than for me, right? Like if I've got these universal these you know these universal myths or these you know this dogma this doctrine, then I don't actually have to do the work of trying to figure out is this good or is this true. Or is this a reflection of my own lived experience, right? It's that I can outsource that. Again, I can escape the self. Um, and uh, I, I'm not obviously. I'm not saying that that's that's why people are attracted to religion. That's we're saying the opposite. But it is it is a way in which we can try to escape the self. We talked about vocation and calling for a couple of those episodes, and that's I can't remember if we touched on this, Matt, but that's one of the things that that I see pretty regularly is that with folks that, that uh, are, are trying to follow their calling is that the, the idea is that this is actually going to rescue me from my, from my, my current circumstances. When I like discover my calling, it's going to all come together. And that calling is, is something that the great wince from which we came has for me. And I've got to, I've got to like search and find it. And it's, you know, it's the uh, somebody told me once cost you're you're trying to steal my miracle quit trying to steal my miracle and that was such an honest and like I, I mean what could be a more human response than that like thank god that person was honest because there is a sense that i can you know uh this this uh if i pursue this calling then i don't have to that that all of my my history and all of this experience that Perhaps is quite unpleasant, right? Or doesn't make sense to me. I can I can leave it behind. And the reality, sadly, in those situations, is that it's the opposite, man. Like you got to go deeper into the self. 
deeper into the lived experience, deeper into your personal rituals, into your ideas and conceptions of magic in order in order to have any any i think any authentic connection to the divine i think that's where it happens it's uh so um uh, so i think it's just such a such like a fascinating question it's probably totally unanswerable right it's like why why do we not want to just check out 24/7 and i think one of the reasons at least for me is that i have no chance of of any kind of like real real religious experience. And for me, that is, I, I, I'd say that's religious experience for me is a connection between the parts and the whole. It's, uh, you know, it's between the seeing, understanding myself at once as a tiny, tiny, tiny part of this like massive cosmic galaxy that I'm connected to, right? And also at the same time, a completely unique creation within that cosmic galaxy. And when I understand myself as a part of the whole, uh, as uh, then for me, that's what religious experience feels like. And so uh, that can only happen if I'm willing to or able to acknowledge myself as that unique individual part, you know? Yeah, you really, you really helped me out. You really helped me sort my thoughts out just now. Um, I got you. Because I was, I, I'm genuinely asking myself these questions as we talk. Yeah. And to your point, I, I think, so let's take, let's take a religious person who uses the practices and uses the community as a way to sort of avoid doing some of the hard stuff, doing some of the hard work with their own emotions and their own experiences what Neumann and Jung would say, would call that, is an, in, an avoidance of the unconscious. So you've got hmm. an avoidance of dealing with the shadow. So all the parts of me that I'm aware of are my consciousness to a large degree. They're, they're my persona that I want to present to the world. And then the parts of me that I'm not fully aware of that I don't that come out of me that I don't even know are coming out or the things that I wrestle with that I try not to let people know about that's my shadow and that's the unconscious and there's there's some scary things lurking under there that are hard to deal with and so sometimes we can use religious practices not as a way to go deeper into that shadow work but as a way to avoid as a way to say, well, you know, I'm doing these things and I'm on the right path and I don't have to worry about that. And that's the complete opposite. That's to me, the, the, the net effect is the same as, as online shopping, or it may not be as destructive externally. It might be, it may not be as, you know, getting drunk, becoming an alcoholic or, you know, being addicted to scrolling on your phone, but it's the same. And Neumann and Jung would say it's the same aversion. And I think I agree with them where you're just trying to avoid doing the hard work of digging into your own shadow of digging into the parts of you that you don't really want to even acknowledge are there. And you sure as hell don't want anyone else to know that they're there. But I think to try to answer my own question, and, and, and you help me with this. G when Jesus says, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's, he's setting himself up as the gate, the gateway to the Father. I am the way, and, and, and like the Tao, the ancient Chinese religion of Taoism, the Tao is the way. It's the way of being in the world. And Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, the logos, and I am the life. And this path of consciousness, this path of, of going deeper and higher to higher levels of consciousness is the path, is the way. It is the truth. It, it's, it's dealing with the truth of who we are, dealing with the truth of what we experience in the world. And it is the life. Unconsciousness is a way of avoiding our own lives. It's a way of our avoiding what's really true inside of us. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the path toward, he is the path toward the highest consciousness. He is the way of highest consciousness, the truth of highest consciousness. And the life is in that. But what, what we find out, what he's saying is that that path, you, if you go through that path, you enter through the gate to the Father. And what you're saying is, if I don't go through these processes of becoming more conscious, I have no access to spiritual experience at all. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you go through this, these processes, you reach, you, you reach the Father. You get to the Father. You get to the spiritual experience. You get to the higher. You get to the... Um, you get to you get to love itself. You get to God as love. If you enter through the gate, if you enter through the gate of Jesus, and in in our turn, we're putting it in terms of consciousness, of understanding ourselves, of dealing with our shadow, of being in our own, of inhabiting our own lives. Then you reach the Father. Then you reach what is highest. Then you reach the ultimate expression of love and acceptance and and grace and the opposite is also true if the things that you try to avoid will haunt you they will neumann and jung will both agree the things that you bury in the unconscious the things that you um that you uh what do you call the, the repress the things that you about yourself that you repress and avoid and that you don't want to see, that you don't put the spotlight on, they will grow and they will haunt you and they will wreck your life. They will make you miserable. And so hell will chase you down. But the way, the path of consciousness leads to the Father. So to, to, to sum it all up, as William Wallace said, every man dies, but not every man really lives. Did you say truly lives or really? I just got goosebumps. Whew. So you can't, and that's what, that's the whole thing. Like you can't take the pill and really live. Like you're not really living if you don't, <coughs> if you don't take the pill. God, how did we just get, if Neo, Neo takes the pill, the red pill, right? The red one's is, is knowledge. I've never seen the matrix. I don't know. Oh my God. I almost knocked my microphone over, but it's, it's like it, William Wallace and Neo, it's like the same, it's the same story. It's do I want to, to inhabit my own life or do I want to avoid 
my, my, my own existence? Do I want to avoid my own, my own being? So let's, let's go back to Jesus. All right. Let's like, let's just for a moment, for a moment, let's consider that perhaps like the, the three different origin stories that we have for the, for Jesus entering the world are not all written to be considered historically accurate documents. That, that being the case, that there, there perhaps is like a larger truth claim in the incarnation story that actually it doesn't matter whether it historically happened that way or not. That we're making a claim about the way the world or God or, rea or reality or reality. It's an expression of our experience as human beings. Think about the claim, man. That in order to the, the incarnation is that um, that the divine that God enters the world through uh, enters the world as a human being and partakes or participates in every single thing that could make God a human that a human does is is what God does right and the Christian claim is that that like you said that that is the way that we that we are made right before God or that we connect with God. Yeah, man, the, the claim is that you have to go into your humanity in order to connect to the divine. That's the claim. Not that you go further away from it. It's that, it's that you actually, you have to become fully human in order to get to God, that God doesn't, you don't escape your humanity. You don't escape the, you know, the, your lived experience. It's like, uh, it's like religious experience is, or God is your life showing up in your life as your life. You, you know what I'm saying? And so, so by actually like trying to, I don't know, trying to avoid or try, trying to outsource so, so much of our decisions and so much, so much of, uh, of, of our way of orienting ourselves in the world to like, you know, some universal construct that some dogma or doctrine, um, yeah, we're actually like robbing ourselves of an opportunity to experience something really divine. That's, I mean, that's, that's what I think. And I think it's in the founding, like the founding myth, the founding story of the, you know, of the founding Christian story is the incarnation. It's like woven into the fabric, man. It's there. Yeah. We, we just, uh, we don't ever talk about it that way, but you got to go into yourself. You got to go like further into the self, into the human experience in order to, to like get to the divine on the other side. I don't know. Or, or, or to at least even acknowledge or experience that it's there, even if you can't get there. Yeah. And that's, that's now I feel like I'm talking in circles, but you get what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. Cause it's, he's, it's Christianity at large is the pattern of the way the world works. It's the pattern of reality. It's the highest pattern of reality. And Jesus was not just the son of God. He was the son of man and the son of God, the ultimate expression of humanity, like the ultimate pattern of humanity and the expression of the pattern of God. And so they, they, they can't be extricated. Like you go, to go into one is to go into both. 
to go into humanity fully is to go into is to move deeper into God fully. Like there, it's one, it's all, it's in one, it's in one expression. And that's the, that's the pattern of, that's the pattern of how the world is. That's the pattern of how the world lays itself out for us and how our experience and how our experiences, you know, um, operate inside of us. Um, it's the one to, to go back to your, what the, the one in the many, Parts in the whole. The parts in the yeah. whole. Yeah. It's just it's it's the unity, and that's what that's what's so wild about the whole thing is that you establish, you become conscious, and then you go through the process of of delineating yourself from others and from the world, and you your ego develops, and that's that's the process of consciousness. You become individuated. You become differentiated from everything around you, and then. And you just keep breaking down, you know, you keep breaking down. Consciousness bre breaks everything down into pieces. It breaks down black from white, and then it breaks down all the shades of uh, all the shades of gray. And then it, it breaks everything into its components. But then at some point it flips and starts reintegrating everything back into itself. And it starts ordering it in, in an order, in an ordered fashion. In order to in order to in order to break down and in order to manage the chaos of the world around us, we break everything down into its parts, into into parts that we can manage. In order to not in order to not be overwhelmed by our own experience of just being in the world, we try to break everything down into its components so that we can understand what's happening. And then at a certain point, once we achieve a certain level of consciousness about the way the world is, then we start putting things back together and reconstructing the world in an ordered fashion that makes sense, that helps us become one again, become one again with, with each other, become one again with the, with the world around us. And we, all of a sudden, we're, now we're reintegrating and bringing things back together as one like the, the the tree you know the leaves the leaves and the and the and the trunk you know the leaves have to establish themselves as distinct from you know the little twigs and the branch and the trunk but it's all but then it 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 all is one thing but it's it has to distinguish itself in order to grow but it then again it reestablishes its identity with the tree in the way that it, it functions yeah, I, I, I'm gonna. As you're talking, I'm trying to work work through something here, and this is, I, I think it's it's the role, it's the 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 role of loss, in the formation of the self. And you may you, you this this might have been what you were what you were like, getting getting at with the tree and the leaf that you know, like distinguishing itself as, as, uh, as its own sense of being is, you know, so often. I think when you like folks, folks that sort of get to that second half of life, right, um, or or get to get to like a, a a very solid sense of self, I think I think oftentimes there is some experience of loss or grief that uh, facilitates that experience, and um, and I think one of the reasons why is because uh, first. Like you can't, I mean, you can, but like your, 
your when when you experience grief after some kind of life altering loss, it's gonna find you. It's like you can't even go to sleep. It finds you in your sleep, right? And and so the links that you have to go to to numb yourself from that or to escape from that feeling or that experience, it's it's almost impossible to do that. We still try because it's awful, but it, it it's just you, you can't hide from it, man. Um, not very well. And so I think uh, that that's the first part. The second part is that 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 experience of loss from somebody or something that I was connected to, right? Also throughout that grieving process forms within me or reminds me or reveals to me who I am without that thing or that person. In other words, it brings me or forms a sense of identity, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to be, I, again, I'm, I'm talking out of my ass here because this is this is like a, to use the Michael Scott line, this is a uh, an idea I've had since lunch. This is a dream that I've had since lunch. But when uh, when when MLK was assassinated, uh, RFK Robert Kennedy was running for president, and he read this poem. He recited it from memory uh, that had been helpful for him, and he did it to the crowd, like on the spot, by uh, by a well, like this Greek poet named Aeschylus, and it's something to the effect of um, uh, the you know like our pain, which does not sleep, uh, falls drop by drop upon our heart, even in our sleep, until by the awful grace of God comes wisdom. And I think that that wisdom at the end there could could I think could also be referring to just comes a sense of who I am, um, an idea of who I am within the world, like an idea of how the world works and who I am and how I'm connected to it. Um, but it often only comes through loss. Uh, there's a, there's a, it's like the metaphor of the hammer that, you know, um, when you use a hammer, you know what it does. Swing hammer, hit nail, drive nail. But it's not until you try to use a broken hammer that you understand how it works. You have a better sense of actually how the parts are connected and what they're doing together and what, you know, why each of these things is important and how they're work, you know, how they work together to put a nail and drive a nail to the wall. So, uh, I, again, I, I'm like kind of pulling this out of my ass, but I wonder if that that experience of loss isn't in some way facilitating a deeper understanding of self, and if that's not necessary, if that isn't a necessary factor to understanding who we are. And then, like you said, on the other side of that, weirdly, we actually, in some ways, feel or experience a deeper connection to the world. And I don't know how that works because I'm, I'm like already turned around, but in my head, but I don't know, Matt. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking. I just work here. <laughs> I'm tracking with you. And I think if I had to wager a guess, I think it has something to do with the ego and the ego's sense of self and permanence. And the ego, the the germinal ego, the young ego, the developing ego feels itself as independent and then but also insecure. Like it it wants it it's here but it's on 
our sense of self is sort of on shaky ground and or or just not even sure what's exactly underneath our feet and when when we lose someone or something and we get a glimpse of the impermanence of the world around us and the constant change that our ego feels it as a threat to its own existence and so we experience that grief and that loss you know almost to an existential almost as an existential threat it is an existential threat yes yeah to us in that moment yes that all of a sudden light a, a new light pierces through and exposes something new about reality that we weren't convinced of you know that that death and loss and change ultimately this all comes down to change it's all change you know that was all theoretical and now it becomes real and the ego doesn't know like what does this mean for me am i here am i am i am i too like a shadow that's that's here today and and gone here in the morning and gone at noon um and so once we can move once we figure out how to move through that grief we discover something we discover a truer version of ourselves we eventually if we with with help and with effort and reflection and insight we discover the truest parts of ourselves the ego then looks around goes exploring in the other parts of of the unconscious the things that haven't been seen yet and finds something to hold on to finds something eternal finds love finds something higher than just temporary you know uh, temporary control and so that's that's the process of maturation is if the ego can if the ego can let go of control and can can deal with the insecurity of change and let go of if we can learn to let go of those attachments those are the things that loss and grief are are teaching us or and will teach us but i i think i think it, it feels like we're we're moving away from our starting point but yeah. I, but i would say that this is all this is all consciousness this is all us discovering the hidden gems of ourselves of our own person of our own psyche of our own soul uh, really it's our soul it's discovering the hidden gems of our right. own souls and that's what the process of consciousness um is seeking is, is pursuing so my next question, Matt, is what kind of control or what kind of sense of agency, what kind of agency do I have in becoming more self-conscious? Like, is it a thing I try to do or is it a thing that happens? <laughs> right? Um, if, yeah. if the sense of self or a sense of consciousness is the result of, in, is the result of change or loss um, and, and yeah, all change is loss, right? That it's not change that's hard. It's it's the loss that comes with change that's hard. If 
if the result of that is a deeper sense of self and a deeper consciousness of who I am uh, as a part of the world around me, then can I try to become more conscious or is it something that happens? Yeah. So we just hit the one hour mark, which puts, okay. us, at, which puts us at an hour and a half. And I think that we should answer that question at the beginning of our next episode. Done. Because I think that's a great question. That'll give me some time to Google it. <laughs> exactly. All right. That was fun. That got me, that got my brain rolling, which was the whole point of the whole point of this exercise. Yeah. Yeah, man. Very good.